Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Emerson Green. We've got a very special episode today. Most everyone who has listened to the podcast, or if you're watching this channel, knows who both my guests are. Philip Goff is a philosopher and consciousness researcher at Durham University, UK. He's the co-host of the second best podcast that talks about panpsychism, Mind Chat, as well as the author of Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, Galileo's Error, and a forthcoming book related to today's topic. Dustin Crummett is a philosopher who specializes in social and political philosophy, ethics, and the intersection of those fields and philosophy of religion. He's the co-author of Applied Ethics, An Impartial Introduction, and co-editor of the Rutledge series, Little Debates About Big Questions, as well as the co-author, along with Brian Cutter, of Psychophysical Harmony, A New Argument for Theism. So uh, before we move on, is there anything else related to your current projects or past work that you want to mention? And both of you really need to update your websites, by the way. <laughs> I know, I really do. It's been on my to-do list for ages to update my website, but I've just so much just so many things to do but i'm gonna do that soon yeah i'll i'll have uh i'll have a big update about what i'm doing these days in a couple weeks um after some things happen well it sounds intriguing yeah exactly exactly so in the meantime people should go subscribe to my youtube channel i guess that's that's where i can always direct people right so for the record this will not be like a detailed exposition of the argument from psychophysical harmony for that, you can watch or listen to my interviews with Dustin or with Brian. So before I hand it over to Dustin and he talks about his preferred explanation, I just wanted to briefly mention something related to why I wanted to host this conversation and why I find it interesting. So for a long time, I've defended the hypothesis of indifference, the idea that the universe is fundamentally indifferent to pain and pleasure, good and evil, value and disvalue, is a powerful hypothesis that explains a wide range of data, but it's not perfect there are a few anomalies, and one striking anomaly is psychophysical harmony, and there are a few others that may come up today as well. Everyone here thinks psychophysical harmony is a good argument, so we won't really be at pains to detail why it's a good argument. We're more or less taking it as an assumption and sort of exploring the conceptual space from there. If you reject that starting point, then that's fine, but it's still good to know what your options are. So from there, we'll be proceeding comparatively We'll be comparing a few different theories that posit what you might call a value selection effect. They factor the goodness of the outcome into the explanation of why it happened or why it exists. That it's valuable, that it's good, is part of the real explanation. And without it, the explanation will never be complete. So why talk about those kinds of theories? Mainly because of phenomena like psychophysical harmony that are A, very valuable, and B, very improbable. We landed on this tiny slice of probability space that happens to be very good. And what the different proposed ideas that we'll be talking about have in common is that they think goodness plays a role in the complete explanation, that it's good as part of why it exists. Obviously, the most common version of that sort of thinking is theistic in nature, but there are non-standard forms of theism, and there are even non-theistic value selection hypotheses, like natural teleology. So even if you disagree, it's worth exploring this conceptual space and working out the implications of going down certain paths and just more fully appreciating the diverse views that could be held by atheists and others who reject perfect being theism. So with that, I want to hand it over to Dustin. Yeah, so psychophysical harmony, um, if people have watched uh, you know, the videos that uh, Emerson has done on this or have read our paper, uh, they'll know. Basically, that's just the fact that there's this 
rationally and semantically appropriate uh, set of correlations between our conscious states and uh, our behavioral dispositions and beliefs and judgments understood in functional terms, that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, we're disposed to pursue valuable experiences like pleasure, disposed to avoid uh, disvaluable experiences like pain. We're disposed to uh, say things like, oh, there's a, a yellow cylindrical object in my visual field. And in fact, I'm having a conscious experience as of a, you know, a yellow cylindrical object. If uh, there's something that it's like uh, to be in an intentional state, uh, people who believe in cognitive phenomenology, if there's something it's like to have a belief or a desire, say, then it turns out that phenomenology matches up with kind of a belief, desire, explanation of our actions. So I have belief that there's beer in the fridge phenomenology and desire to have a beer phenomenology. And sure enough, I go to the beer and open it up. You know. um, what we argue in the paper is that uh, this is very, very surprising, very, very intrinsically unlikely um, on basically any view of, of philosophy of mind, which grants that consciousness exists and there's at least an epistemic gap between the physical and uh, uh, the qualitative, the facts about consciousness. Um, so even on forms of physicalism, which grant that there is an epistemic gap, uh, which is so-called type B physicalism or whatever, this is what's accepted by most physicalists. Uh, we say that there's, there's still a problem. We say that uh, it's not um, avoided by uh, belief in mental causation. Uh, it's not avoided by uh, belief in evolution, despite the fact that that's what everybody on the internet thinks. To see why it's puzzling, um, it's easiest to see, uh, to start with like epiphenomenalist dualism. Um, so the mental and the physical are distinct and uh, the mental doesn't have any causal impact on the world. Um, and then you can easily see like, well, consciousness could have been distributed over physical states any which way. Could have been that pain and pleasure were inverted. Could have been that uh, you know, I just have like static white noise uh, phenomenology in my visual field. Could have been that I had some wild set of belief, desire, psychology, phenomenology things. And I would have behaved exactly the same because the mental doesn't causally influence uh, the, uh, the physical on epiphenomenalism. Um, and once you think about like all the different kinds of ways that these things could be hooked up, it turns out only the tiniest slice of possible correlations are harmonious. Um, the simplest correlations also don't seem harmonious. They're, you know, maybe just everything is the same boring buzzing noise or something. Um, and so uh, there's a real puzzle about how it is that we landed on the harmonious set of correlations. As I say, we argue, I won't give the argument for this here, but we argue that this remains puzzling even if we accept other views besides epiphenomenalist dualism. Um, and uh, what we say is, well, um, the psychophysical harmony is valuable. Uh, it makes possible all sorts of, maybe it's valuable in and of itself, just that you're responding rationally to things, et cetera. Um, it makes possible all sorts of agency. It would be, um, you know, kind of almost like kind of a pathetic world if you were cowering before, uh, you know, evaluatively neutral states or, you know, I really want to do something nice for my fiance, but that actually causes her terrible pain or something like that. Right. 
And so um, we have this thing that seems like massively improbable, massively finely tuned in a certain sense. Um, and it's also really significant. It's really valuable. And so what that suggests is that uh, this wasn't just, oh, we got super lucky, but that the universe is in some way oriented towards the production of value, right? Somehow that's built into uh, the, the psychophysical laws. There might be other pieces of evidence that suggest that too. But um, one way that the universe could be oriented towards the production of value is if God exists and God made the universe and decided that the psychophysical laws would be as they are. Um, so what we, what we say in the paper is, okay, this at least supports theism over, say, the hypothesis of indifference. Uh, there may be other views on which the universe is somehow oriented towards value. And it might be that to distinguish between theism and those, we need to appeal to other considerations, right, besides just psychophysical harmony. So what we advance in the paper is theism as an explanation, um, though it may be that there are other things which explain psychophysical harmony just as well, and to support theism, we'll need to get into other stuff. And I imagine that we probably won't get into other stuff in this conversation, but that's that's how we're, that's how Brian and I are thinking about it, more or less. And do you want to um, briefly mention why you think theism might have an advantage over, like, a limited god? hypothesis or natural teleology i mean we can hand it over to philip if you want him to kick it off uh well i i i could i was thinking we would just get into that later after philip has said his okay piece, maybe oh. yeah sure yeah so i mean i firstly i mean i do think there's something really really important here and um i mean it's actually something i've been pressing for a while uh i had a paper in um in 2017 in the um philosophical journal philosophical quarterly called um, conscious thought and the cognitive fine-tuning problem pressing something like this this challenge so i kind of i tend to call it the the consciousness fine-tuning problem or the cognitive fine-tuning problem and i mean i think i think most philosophers just kind of haven't really noticed it yet and i think it is i think it is a, a quite a subtle problem uh more much more subtle and difficult to get than the more familiar hard problem of consciousness. But I do think it has pretty radical implications. I mean, an another difference to the hard problem of consciousness is, is I think it has even more radical implications in that problem. You know, I think maybe, maybe you can address the hard problem of consciousness with a bit of panpsychism or a bit of naturalistic dualism. And, you know, people used to think that was a bit weird. But I think, you know, once you get used to it, it it's not that much of a departure from our standard scientific worldview whereas i think what 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 this problem demands is a much more significant departure from our from the normal way we think about things so yeah i think i mean dustin's let, laid it out very clearly there i mean the core of the problem for me maybe i'm just repeating a little bit here is that conscious experience and behavior on the whole is partnered up in in a rationally appropriate way so the, the clearest example is pain causes tends to cause you to avoid things you know your body feeling pain it causes you to avoid the source of the pain um a conscious attraction to something causes you to go and get it and you know i think that's such an obvious mundane fact of life i think that's why that's why people don't get this problem because that is just like 
what? It's just so obvious. Obviously, if something hurts, you're going to avoid it. If you know, if if you're yearning for something, you're going to go and get it. It's so obvious that it seems like it doesn't need explaining. But if, as as sixty percent of philosophers believe from the from the recent Phil Papers survey, if uh, there's at least a conceptual difference between conscious experience and behavior, then it does need explaining, right? I mean, we could go more, we could go more into that, or as you say, that's it's been done in other videos, but I think it does need explaining. And as I say, 60% of philosophers think this, and you know, that doesn't prove anything, you know, it's not a popularity contest. But I think, you know, philosophers disagree so much when there's when there's that much of a consensus on an issue, I think it's at least should give us pause to thought. I get that figure, by the way, by adding up the anti-physicalists who think zombies are possible and the so-called type B physicalists who think zombies are conceivable but not possible. So they both agree basically that that there's a, there's a radical conceptual difference between conscious states and, and behavior or physical functional states. And that's all you need really to get to get this mystery going. And I mean, the other crucial thing uh, that Dustin pointed to is, and it's always the immediate reaction, evolution does not help with this. Natural selection, rather, does not help. If you think natural selection solves this, you don't get the problem. And that's fair enough. It's a, it is a bit of a subtle problem. But, and the simple reason it doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem is any natural selection explanation presupposes a solution to this, right? Natural selection has only got a motivation, as it were, to make you feel pain when your body's damaged. If that's going to make you avoid getting your body damaged or natural selections only got a motivation to make you yearn for food if that's going to make you go get food but that's already presupposing what we're trying to explain namely that feeling pain is going to make you tend to make you avoid yearning for something's going to tend to make you go for it that that behavior and consciousness are, are, are aligned in this rationally appropriate way um so it is it is a really deep problem okay so just the the reason it has such radical implications is is we we face a choice right either it's just sheer fluke <laughs> that consciousness and behavior aligned in this rationally appropriate way or that somehow rational norms are built in to the fundamental fabric of reality right and i th i think it's just so implausible that it that it's a fluke. I mean, I, I often find actually sort of kind of new atheist types sometimes think you know there's something brave about embracing improbability. I, I I'm not scared of saying it's just a fluke, but it's you know if something is so improbable, it's not brave. It's irrational, right? You shouldn't believe improbable things, right? So I, I think we are there is a very strong pressure here to some kind of view according to which. Um, rationality is the norms of rationality are somehow reality is somehow directed towards what is rationally appropriate okay so god as dustin says god is one way of doing that i'm not a fan of the omni god at least uh all knowing all powerful perfectly good because the problem of evil so the way i um the view i go for to it to solve this problem in in my book which i've just handed in a few days ago the final 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 copy this is why i haven't updated my website or done a million other things i have a huge relief to finish that anyway the, the view i go for as an alternative to theism to solve this problem 
which I think is a little more more elegant, is what I call panagentialism. So I'll, I'll maybe just finish by sending a couple of minutes explaining this. So I, 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 the bare bones of this actually were in my last book, Galileo's Error, in the kind of experimental final chapter, a little section on free will. Um, and I kind of just thought it was a, it was a crazy, um, you know, interesting thing to think about, but didn't take it very seriously. And one of my colleagues, uh, Louise Hansen, who's, who's now at Oxford, um, said, oh, you should write it up as an article. So I, um, I, uh, I, 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 I wrote this, published this article, um, panpsychism and free will, where I sort of developed a bit more. And then I've sort of developed it much more in my new book. But the reason I take it much more seriously now is I thought, ah, this is actually, I think, a really good solution to this consciousness fine-tuning, psychophysical harmony problem, whatever you want to call it. Okay, sorry, I'll get on with the um, the panagentialism. So it's a kind of panpsychism, right? You've got consciousness at the fundamental level, let's say for the sake of simplicity, we've got particles at the fundamental level and they have very, very simple forms of experience. Okay, so that's the panpsychism. What panagentialism adds to that is that there's one and only one causal principle. Very simple unified theory here. One and only one very simple causal principle that determines everything that happens. Namely, all physical entities respond rationally to the character of their experience, right? So so on the panagentious view, nothing is ever compelled to behave. So it's very different to how we normally think about causation. You know, you think it's the, the one billiard ball hits another, compels the second to shoot off across the table. There's nothing is ever compelled to do anything on this view. Okay, so if nothing's ever compelled to do anything, why do we get particles behaving in nice predictable ways? Well, the thought is that particles have conscious inclinations to behave in certain ways. What do I mean by a conscious inclination? Well, the kind of thing you feel when you're consciously yearning for something, you know, you're really hungry or you're really tired. Uh, the particle has a much, 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 much simpler version of that, right? The particle just thinks kind of, I want to do this now, right? So a kind of almost unimaginatively simple form of that doesn't seem any conceptual limit to me to how how simple a conscious yearning could be it's obviously much more simple than in the human case okay now if you're uh if you're an, a normal functioning adult human and you yearn for something you can kind of deliberate about it and you can think is this a good idea you know maybe maybe i shouldn't have the chocolate because i'm on a diet or whatever but if you're but particles can't rationally deliberate, right? Particles, I think, have no understanding of anything, right? They just feel, I want to do this now. And so I want to say the only rational response available to them is the simplest rational response, namely, do what you feel like, right? That's that. I think that is a rational response. It's rational to do what you feel like doing. But uh, that, that's the only rational response available to particles. So therefore, it's inevitable the particles are going to follow their conscious inclinations and thus they behave in predictable ways. Okay, so that's what's going on at the fundamental level. Then what you find when you, after a long period of evolution, when you get something like a tiger, there are two ways in which a tiger is different to a particle. Obviously, there's lots of ways in which a tiger is different from a particle. It's, it's furry and so on. But for our purposes, two crucial ways in which they're different. Um, one is that the, 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 the tiger has conscious understanding. 
of of the world around it of um you know of that there are other tigers and that there are various spatial temporal locations and there's things it wants to eat and things it can eat and so on so it has conscious understanding of the world around it and secondly whereas whereas the particles desires are just do this now the the objects of desire of the tiger are embedded in its complex understanding of the world around it right so it it wants to mate it wants to eat it wants to sleep and these things are embedded in its in the world around it as represented by the tiger so it's much more sophisticated conscious relationship with the world around it and because of that it has much richer rational responses available to it. When, when a tiger rationally responds to its experience, it's a much more sophisticated thing. But crucially, the idea is, the commonality is both the particle and the tiger are acting from exactly the same disposition or capacity, namely a disposition to respond rationally to experience. It's just that the particle can't do much with that because it doesn't understand anything. Whereas the tiger's much more sophisticated mental life that impulse is going to give you a lot more, is going to be flower in a much more sophisticated response. Okay, so that's roughly the view. Why believe this crazy view? Basically, I think with this view in place, you then just need natural selection. Once that's in place, you just need natural selection. Because now natural selection has a motivation to give organisms a complex conscious understanding of the world around them and desires embedded in that because they're going to respond rationally to that understanding and it's going to help them survive better. So once you've got panegentialism in place, you don't need God, you don't need anything like that. You just need normal natural selection. So natural selection, so it's not that I don't think we've evolved through natural selection. I think I think we 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 do we have done, but we need something like panegentialism in place in order to make sense of that. Maybe it's a kind of, I'm just thinking now, maybe it's a kind of like transcendental argument in the Kantian sense. You know, Kant had these transcendental arguments. He said, you know, we need to believe in this view because it's presupposed by other things we believe in, very roughly. I mean, I did talk about this in my book and I took it out because I don't know anything about Kant. (laughs) Anyway, that's the kind of idea. It's, you know, we accept that we evolve through natural selection and this kind of panegentialism view is we need to presuppose that to make sense of that. Otherwise, we bang up against the consciousness fine-tuning problem or the psychophysical harmony problem. I'm using those interchangeably. Okay, that's about where I'm up to on this. Sorry, it was a bit longer than I expected. So it's like um, you see physical reality as sort of like a, a network of conscious agents all responding rationally to their experiences from the bottom level up to where we are now. Yeah, so it's not, so we talked about in your introductory thing, Emerson, you said that, that there needs to be like a push towards the good. So the way that works out in my view is that there's a push towards the rational in the sense that every physical entity is disposed to respond rationally. Because that's the, I mean, look, what's the issue with psychophysical harmony? The, the, the simplest case, pain tends to avoid, tends to lead us to avoid things, pleasure to go for things. That's That's a rational response, right? So the simplest way to make sense of that is, well, things are just disposed to respond rationally. that's the yeah that's that's the simple idea really right so this is like a simple theory that explains the data you know and then it arguably gets a big probability boost from the data of psychophysical harmony which is like 
roughly what Dustin is saying about theism. Yeah, so maybe this would be, I mean, Dustin, you can you can jump in with with whatever you want, but we could start comparing the theories at this point. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you know, they're not mutually exclusive, I guess, right? Um, it could be that theism is true and um, panagentialism is true. Uh, it might even be if panagentialism is, you know, an elegant, simple way of bringing about psychophysical harmony maybe that would be a very reasonable thing for god to do right make panagentialism be true um so yeah i wouldn't necessarily have to reject it and i think philip is is uh sympathetic to the thought that there are other things about the world like physical fine-tuning that require that we posit some kind of value orientation beyond just what's provided by panagentialism um so you know it could be that um we say yeah maybe panagentialism is true maybe that's compatible with theism we still need to say something else and then we still need to get into this question about omni-god versus limited god versus teleological laws whatever yeah so i don't i don't hate panagentialism um i guess one thing to say is it is pretty counterintuitive um and i guess it will be more counterintuitive if you don't already accept um panpsychism which I don't already accept panpsychism. Uh, you know, once you're once you're already attributing mindedness to fundamental entities, it's not a big step to also attribute some sort of basic agency or rationality. Um, I guess, um, and I think having having heard what Philip just said, I think maybe I know what he'll say in response to this. But one thought I had reading um, his chapter in the book is that i wonder if there isn't a kind of analog of the combination problem for like ordinary panpsychism here um so you think okay the uh you know the fundamental particles are disposed to, they have consciousness and they're disposed to behave rationally in accordance with their desires and stuff um that doesn't seem to entail anything about macro level consciousness just immediately right um that seems compatible with us being zombies or us being inverts or whatever you might or us having evaluatively neutral states or you know um that doesn't tell you anything about what the what the macro level uh conscious properties are going to be like or how they're going to be distributed um so you might have the worry that it, it will almost be like you'll need some set of further bridge laws, like sui generis bridge laws, um, that will say something like, okay, when the particles, fundamental particles are doing what they want to do, and they're in this functional organization, then, uh, you know, this harmonious macro level physical state occurs or whatever. Um, and once you have those bridge laws in place, you could go through and strike out the part about the fundamental particles doing what they want to do, right? I think that Philip's response to that, having heard what he just said, I think Philip's response to that will be panagentialism has an advantage because actually you just need this one fundamental unifying principle saying that all physical systems, um, well, actually, let me, let me just say, let me just ask what Philip has to say about that. I won't, there's no reason to guess he's right here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also want to talk about the, the sort of more general stuff you, you, you raised at the start, but maybe maybe i'll start with what you've just said uh yeah so you do need this needs this is going to have to be a non-reductionist form of panpsychism so there are reductionist forms of panpsychism where um you know basically there are just conscious particles and what we call 
Emerson's mind is just, you know, a complex combination of conscious particles. So it's a bit like a, you know, a, a party is nothing over and above people dancing and drinking and stuff. You know, that's just all it is for there to be a party. We we just use the word party to refer to a group of people. So similarly, for, on the reductionist panpsychist view, you know, what we just use Emerson's mind to refer to this collection of conscious particles. So I, I'm, while I'm less and less sympathetic to that kind of very reductionist panpsychism that, for example, Luke Roloff's has done very well at defending. Um, so it's going to have to be a more strong emergentist form of panpsychism where no the conscious particles have capacities to combine into a, a unified whole and the unified whole is something more than the sum of the parts um the, it's it's a sort of an, a new thing um so it's gonna have to be i mean part of the idea here is we're explaining how how, how we evolved and so it's going to have to it's going to have to make a difference to how to how we behave i mean this is part this is part of how i set it up in the book actually that um i i set it up start in the first instance in opposition to a kind of micro reductionist picture where it's just the just physics running the show but then it really is mysterious how we got to evolve the kind of consciousness we have because if it's just the physics running the show then we would have behaved the same, whatever consciousness popped up, right? So I think you really need consciousness when it emerges to make a difference. I mean, not just consciousness, but the particular kind of consciousness we have that um, involves rational understanding and stuff. It has to make a difference. So yeah, so I think this is going to have to be a, a non-reductionist form. And as you say, Dustin, exactly, there's going to have to be some extra, you could do it in terms of extra laws of nature, that just make it the case that in certain circumstances, conscious particles become a unified whole. I, I prefer sort of thinking of it in terms of combinatorial capacities of the particles. But anyway, but one thing I don't agree with that you said is that those extra laws or capacities are going to mention harmony. I don't think you have to have into the laws that, um, oh, it's going to make a harmonious oh. whole, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to suggest that they would uh, say anything about harmony de dicta. It's just they would in, they would imply harmony. Yeah, yeah. Be, they would make a whole because then I think we can bring natural selection in because natural selection, if natural selection um, has a motivation to give us rational understanding of the world around us, on the assumption that we're going to respond rationally to that and survive well. So we don't we don't need extra laws of nature to to do anything with harmony. So so yeah. So then just moving to the big picture, I I I think yeah it is as you say compatible with theism, but um, I mean yeah even if you're theist you have to say how God did it right, and what what's the alternative to what I'm proposing? It's I mean you could have just God like micromanaging everything. What's the um, who's the guy the Cartesian guy who uh, what do we call this? Um, I've forgotten the, the term for it. Occasionalism. Yeah, that's it. Occasionalism, right? Or, or you know, I mean, I guess uh, you and Brian Cutter go for sort of psychophysical laws, but what what do those laws look like? Do you? I, I, I don't think you have, as far as I, I've heard, any kind of elegant story of what. It seems to me the laws are going to have to be incredibly complicated. Whereas I think what I've got here is a pretty simple story. 
and and also i think it makes god a bit redundant right because you you don't i, I don't think you need to add god for psychophysical harmony as you say i am pers- I, I also think cosmological fine tuning is an issue and i don't think panagentalism can address that so we need to we need to add something else and we could talk about what that might be but if for example i think emerson said on in twitter conversations that he's really motivated by this psychophysical harmony stuff but not necessarily by um cosmological fine tuning well then if i were in his position i would just go for panagentialism because i think that's a really simple elegant way of doing the job and god isn't really necessary then i don't see why you'd so so yeah that's 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 how i think about it yeah so let's see so I, I guess one one thing to say is in terms of the psychophysical laws, what is our account of the psychophysical laws? I mean, in terms of what they are, I guess just any any account of what laws of nature are, we could employ, right? How complicated they'll be, you know, that will depend on like how, um, you know, whether it's possible to reduce our conscious experiences to like a small number of simple experiences that can be mixed and matched and whatever but um i guess my thought is that once you go non-reductionist panpsychism you're going to have an analogous problem with whatever i mean specifying maybe the what the combinatorial properties of the particles how they come to generate uh macro level agents with you know macro level subjects with or or agents in this case um with uh you know their own novel sorts of conscious experiences and things um i'm not quite convinced that there's going to be more complexity one way or another there so i mean maybe one thing what i mean one thought i've had with panpsychism before is if you go reductionist then the view seems implausible if you go non-reductionist then the panpsychism part seems less helpful because you you still need these other things governing what happens at the macro level and why not then just say, oh, okay, well, let's just say, let's just have those things at the macro level and you don't need the the more, uh, you know, the mentality at the fundamental level. Um, that's not a super developed thought, um, but that's kind of a, a first pass response to that. Um, I, I, I do agree, yeah. Um, if we think panagentialism is a good explanation of this, then it might render God unnecessary. Um, there might still be some sense in which I think it would be evidence for theism in the sense that maybe panagentialism, if it's a nice, elegant explanation of psychophysical harmony or whatever, it, like that, then maybe panagentialism being the case would be more likely if theism is true than if atheism is true, right? Um, so it could still be evidence for theism, but it's true then if if you were just deciding between panagentialism and theism and we agree that panagentialism is an adequate explanation then i agree yeah we would have to appeal to to other other things at that point i'd have to put my grandma be hat on and uh dispute what you said you know because wouldn't just panagentialism be like the simpler theory there as opposed to panagentialism plus god um maybe um yeah it will depend Sorry, I don't think you would be disputing what I said. So what I said was, um, I, yeah, I also don't know why why it would be evidence for theism exactly. Oh, uh, because it's this, as per hypothesis, 
this simple, elegant way of bringing about this very valuable state of affairs, um, if that turns out to be the case, um, that seems it seems likelier to be the case that the world will be structured in this simple, elegant way that brings about this valuable state of affairs if there's a God that made the world than if there's not, because that includes lots of uh, conceivable scenarios where there's no sort of orientation towards value, and so there's no reason to expect that we have this simple, elegant mechanism that produces a lot of value. Um, in terms of deciding just between panagentialism and theism, um, yeah, which one would it be simpler to be a panagentialist or to be uh, like a theist who thinks that God brought panagentialism about? Um, I think it gets to be a little bit tricky. There's some sense, of course, in which, well, the theist believes in an extra thing. Um, so, like, in some sense, it's more complicated. I think um, what, what matters when we, care, when we do, like, worldview comparisons of this sort is something like simplicity at, like, the fundamental explanatory level. Um, and so then really the question would be, like, what is simpler between, say, the omni-god, which I think Philip agrees is like a very simple theory of God, or, uh, you know, a physical universe of the sort that we find, you know, maybe, or, or the singularity or whatever, um, which is also governed by panagentialism in addition to other laws that are not entailed by panagentialism. Um, I'm not sure that the panagentialist um, view once we think about the other things that panagentialist needs to build in fundamentally, if they don't say that there's some deeper explanation, I'm not sure that that's simpler. And then, of course, there might be other pieces of evidence for and against either of these views too, right? Um, so Philip will say, well, one piece of evidence against the omni god is the problem of evil, and you know maybe we'll talk about that at some point. But oh, could I could I just answer that then before we move on to? Uh, yeah, I think I agree with Emerson there. I mean, it's like okay, so the the panagentialist view is just you know stuff is rational and then what theism is this rational mind okay i can see that you know rational stuff is more likely if there's a rational mind but that to my mind is like saying uh okay god is more likely if there's a if there's another god or, that created it or something um i mean i think um there doesn't seem to be much explanatory advantage going from stuff is rational to there is this rational mind that created it although i see you get into the swinburne view that okay, theism is just really simple. I sort of feel like that's straying into maybe a slightly different argument. But again, coming back to the... Um, yeah, I don't think the laws for panagentialism would necessarily be complex. I mean, as I say in the book, I'm quite sympathetic to the integrated information theory for philosophical rather than empirical reasons. Um, and I think that seems pretty simple, right? You just, w when you've got, maximal inf maximal integrated information in a whole uh, sorry like more in the whole than the parts then you get consciousness so you plug that into this kind of non-reductionist panpsychism strong emerges panpsychism that would just be a sort of basic principle causal principle that when conscious particles form a system where there's more integrated information in the whole than the parts they form a unified conscious whole that seems pretty simple and then, as I say, evolution works to to sort of shape rational understanding. Whereas, it, you know, if 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 you and Brian are just sort of postulating laws to 
make it that you know pain make you behave in the right rationally responsive way to pain and the rationally responsive way to seeing a cup um i mean obviously it's not going to be that particular but i don't know i, I struggle to see how you'd kind of systematize it in that simple elegant way um but i also want to say I me mean, so as i say if you're just with panagen if you're just with psychophysical harmony i just go for panagentialism but one thing i talk about in the book is how if you do believe in cosmological fine tuning they sort of work together to give strength to some kind of um big explanatory demand because they seem to fit together very very well because without cosmological fine tuning so you've just got this rational matter but without cosmological fine tuning it looks like it's not going to be able to do very much you're just going to be stuck with very simple particles doing what they feel like doing right it's only you know the, the, the fine cosmological fine tuning tells us to get any kind of interesting chemistry you need fine tuning and it looks like you need that to get evolved organisms that can reach a higher form of rationality that can respond in a um rationally appropriate way to their understanding of the universe so it's almost like rational matter so the panagentialist postulates rational matter and it sort of has built into it this potential for flowering into the kind of rationality humans exhibit but that would not be possible without cosmological fine tuning so to put it the other way around if you just had cosmological fine tuning and you didn't have rational matter then i think you wouldn't have psychophysical harmony you know so 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 either way so it's like you need both rational matter and cosmological fine tuning to get the kind kind of flowerings full flowerings of rationality that we find in human beings so that does in itself i think push you towards something godish <laughs> but I, as you say for reasons of the problem of evil i don't like the omnigod i think there are other alternatives but that that's how I see it. So just panagentialism, sorry, just psychophysical harmony wouldn't necessarily push you towards something godish, but together with cosmological fine tuning, it sort of it amplifies the fine tuning argument for something godish, I think. Um, just to retread some ground that we just covered, um, you mentioned that you think R Luke Roloffs can't be a panagentialist. Is that a sure thing in your mind? Yeah, I think so. I think Luke could agree with that. I mean Luke's great because he's, you know, he's the most sort of reductionist, atheistic, secular, panpsychist you can get. You know, he's just, he's totally, um, which is great. You know, it's and he he's he, he you know is 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 really good. It's he does it really well. Um, so yeah, I think he's got that very reductionist picture. So it, it's crucial for the panage. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there are other ways of understanding panagentialism, but the point is there's a kind of fundamental causation at the level of the organism, maybe the organism's brain. I would think of it as the organism's brain that there's the tiger is rationally responding to its understanding. And that that is a fundamental kind of causation. Um, uh, Cause to my mind, it's got to make a difference for natural selection to be interested in it. If it was just physics, natural selection wouldn't be interested in giving us psychophysical harmony, in giving us conscious understanding, it's got to make a difference. So there's got to be um, 
a fundamental causal uh, processes going on at the level of the organism. The organism is the organism's rational responsiveness to its its environment is a, is on this view a fundamental form of causation. And yeah, that Luke Roloff is is totally reductionist. He's so I don't think he would go. I think he'd agree with that. So um, you think we need to go in for like non-reductive panpsychism where, you know, sort of, it's sort of more like redrawing the boundaries around subjects um, as they come together. But Dustin made an interesting point about, well, if you do have to invoke something like non-reductive panpsychism, then doesn't that kind of undermine some of the motivation for panpsychism to begin with? If you're going to invoke something like strong emergence, then why not just be a dualist and go in for the more intuitive view? Um, I mean, one response to that is that it doesn't seem like the panagentialist view could work with dualism. So that might be a reason to still go with panpsychism over dualism if panagentialism only works with panpsychism and panagentialism helps solve uh, psychophysical harmony. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, just in terms of just forgetting all the psychophysical harmony stuff, just in terms of panpsychism. So this is a point that's often made if I think maybe this is kind of to what Justin, uh, sorry, Justin, Dustin said earlier. Yeah, if you're gonna have this non-reductionist view, why not just be a why not just be a David Chalmers style dualist where there's just basic laws that kick in when you just got bog standard non-conscious particles and then basic laws that kick in when when they get in certain arrangements. And yeah, my response to that is just that panpsychism is more parsimonious, right? Dual in I mean, I had this argument with Brian, actually, Brian Cutter on, an, on another podcast. Dualism believes in two kinds of stuff. Panpsychism only believes in one kind of stuff. So, to, I mean, to put it another way, I think panpsychism earns its value by reducing the physical world to consciousness, right? That's the st that you've just got consciousness and that we, we don't, I'm sure I won't go into it now unless, unless you want me to. You know, the physical world emerges from underlying facts about consciousness. So that's the explanatory value. That's the theoretical value of panpsychism, reducing the physical world to facts about consciousness. If you can also do some more reductive work, um, if the roll-off picture worked, that would be amazing. You know, that would be a bonus. I've also, I've got a forthcoming paper, how exactly does panpsychism explain consciousness, where I sort of have a partial reductionist picture. So that would give us some parsimony gains. But even if you can't do that, even if consciousness is, if biological consciousness is sort of radically new, you've still, you've still earned your keep by reducing the physical world. So I still think it's more parsimonious than dualism. But as you said, once we're bringing in psychophysical harmony, then we've got a really hardcore reason to go for panpsychism, I think, because it helps with this. The panagentialist, it allows us to be panagentialists, which helps explain psychophysical harmony. Can I say something about the IIT stuff? Um, so I guess, of course, I mean, you'll know this, but it, it does seem like we do get into maybe a trade-off between um, simplicity and some of our ordinary intuitions about what sorts of things are conscious. Um, it's already pretty weird to most people to think that electrons are conscious, but then IIT maybe implies that like light switches are, or, you know, um, or that I could I could cease being conscious by being, you know, related in the right way to some bigger system that has, uh, you know, a higher degree of in integrated information merely by making this extrinsic change to me. Um, so IIT does have some some odd implications. I guess I would be inclined to think 
it doesn't quite immediately allow you to generate um, macro level consciousness either because it doesn't tell you like what sorts of conscious states are going to be happening. It just tells you that what systems are conscious and like the degree of consciousness, right? So you'll maybe need some some further, if not bridge laws, something else to add to the theory to get that. Um, and then maybe another thought is, you know, Swinburne has this argument that, oh yeah, um, the psychophysical laws are going to be super complicated uh, and arbitrary seeming. And like what that tells you is there has to be some deeper explanation, right? Um, Oh, so this is an argument for theism because God can, well, God has reason to want to make embodied beings. God could be responsible for these complicated laws. We know they're too, too complicated, like things this complicated are intrinsically improbable, particularly when they work out well in this very interesting way. Um, so, yeah, I guess maybe that could be summed up as um, IIT does have some pretty odd implications that we can avoid. Uh, if we don't go that route. Um, it does seem to me that we need a little bit more complication, at least, still to actually fill in the details about what conscious experiences are happening at the macro level. And maybe, like, the complicatedness of kind of dualistic bridge laws or whatever is not quite as bad if you're a theist because you can give this deeper explanation of how it is that they exist and so forth. Um, so, yeah, th those are some thoughts about that, maybe. Yeah, I mean, what what I like about IIT is that it it gives us non-vague answers to which things are conscious. Uh, it gives consciousness precise boundaries in in the philosophical sense of the word vague, meaning there are fuzzy borderline cases where when is I know you know this does, but just for any 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 viewers who aren't familiar with that term, and so. There's a great paper, recent paper by um, Eric Schwitzgabel coming on my podcast, Mind Chat, as, as you say, Emerson, the second best podcast connected to panpsychism, uh, to talk about this in May. Um, he, you know, he he thinks that it could be that there's no fact of the matter as to whether or not a snail is conscious. So it's not that it's like got a little bit of consciousness. It's there's just no fact of the matter as to whether it's just an unfeeling mechanism or whether it's got an inner life. And I don't think that makes sense i think either it's got an inner life maybe a very simple kind maybe a very alien kind but either it's got an inner life or it's just an unfeeling mechanism uh and the only theory that can give us that you know that there's always a fact of the matter is iat because if you take for example global workspace theory where something's conscious if it's about you know the information being broadcast enough through different systems in the brain Presumably, there's not going to be any exact cutoff point where it's the information is broadcast just enough, right? So it looks like it's going to be there's at some point it's going to be indeterminate whether or not a thing is conscious. Maybe as you know, the the fetus, the embryo becomes a a, a baby or whatever. Or uh, whereas IIT has an utterly sharp cutoff. So that's what I like about it. Um, I'm not wedded to it though. You know, I'm just saying for me it's the only option i think the only of of the current empirical options that passes that test which is sort of a deal breaker for me so it's like it's the only it's the only view that passes my deal breaker test but you know i'm not saying it's perfect and you know uh and and I, I, yeah as you say i think it's a fair point that it's not just combination we want um 
how is it that the specifics of our consciousness gets generated, all the different sensory qualities we find, um, that our desires are sort of projected out in our understanding of the world. So yeah, I mean, I haven't a clue how we could start to make theoretical sense of that. I guess where, where I'd push back at Swinburne is like, I don't see a good argument that that's necessarily going to be complex. It's just that I I have, I don't know anyone who's figured out how to make sense of it yet, but you know, maybe it's just takes time or something, but yeah, there's certainly at the very least a big challenge there. Yeah, I guess I, I do. I agree about no vagueness in consciousness. Um, I guess here's another view, which I guess is what I think um there's there's some sort of like kind of arbitrary looking boundary uh where systems become conscious um and you know and it's going to look from the perspective of a physicalist theory it's going to look arbitrary and maybe that's a problem for a physicalist theory because it should be some necessary truth when there's consciousness on physicalism and um but in my view well there's like a contingent natural law that kicks in at some stage and well, why did it kick in at that stage? Well, because God, that's, that's how God persistified it, you know? Um, and then that gets us, that comports better, at least with our intuitions about what sorts of things are conscious and maybe how consciousness behaves in certain cases and that sort of thing. Yeah. I, I recently made an episode about vagueness arguments and um, Dustin and I have talked about them before. And that was kind of the point I was waiting for someone to make, but everyone was too busy making the dumbest objections conceivable to the vagueness argument. So no one ever got around to saying, hey, wait a minute. Um, you think that the boundaries of consciousness are kind of redrawn at different levels. Like wherever you pick that, doesn't, isn't it going to seem kind of arbitrary? And isn't it going to have to be a sharp cutoff when that does happen? And it's like, oh, now it doesn't seem like such a strong theoretical advantage. Um, <laughs> but you know nobody said that because they were too busy giving totally irrelevant analogies and so on but but that's that's the that's the great thing about iat that their cutoff doesn't seem so arbitrary right exactly yeah you know, I was, that was like, that would be the next yeah. step <laughs> yeah. but yeah yeah oh yeah well yeah I, yeah I guess my theory i mean maybe the view is uh iit is true um but consciousness kicks in at a certain level that excludes light switches and things like that well, why does it kick in at that level? Because that's the level God picked. Maybe there wasn't any use in having conscious light switches, but there are use in having conscious cats and dogs and bugs and people. And Yeah, I mean, I could certainly see, like, empirical advances, if that did turn out to be true, that it looked really arbitrary where it kicked in. You know, maybe that would start to point towards theism. But, um, but yeah, I just think... We just understand so little <laughs> about consciousness, and um, I, I don't see a really good argument that that's inevitable. That there couldn't be, there couldn't end up being some pretty simple laws. Although it it, it is hard to see how it. I mean, that, that what what they call in the panpsychism literature the palette problem. That there's just like all the different sensory qualities we find in experience. Uh, that. Um, don't seem to have anything to do with each other how do they all fit together in simple laws so i can't quite get it but but i don't see a good argument that there couldn't be some simple principles that are just maybe beyond our understanding um could i bring in a uh, term that we somehow haven't mentioned yet um the term being axiarchism um i was thinking about you know kind of 
presenting this is like, oh, theism versus axiarchism or something like that, or theism versus natural teleology. Um, Philip, could you unpack uh, what is meant by axiarchism and um, natural teleology? Yeah, so to, to take the latter first, maybe, I think, I do think cosmological fine tuning in conjunction with consciousness fine tuning points to something godish in the sense of some kind of goal directedness in reality. I don't like the omnigod because of the problem of evil, but I think there are a number of alternatives. Um, I'm open to non standard designers, I'm open to a conscious universe. But one possibility is the one Thomas Nagel defended in his great 2012 book, Mind and Consciousness, Mind and Consciousness, Mind and Cosmos, which got horrible, unfair reviews because it was, you know, I think if he'd just been defending theism, probably most people would have ignored it and, you know, some people would have liked it. And uh, But the fact that he was, he didn't like God either. The fact that he, he wasn't fitting into nice categories he wasn't defend he was attacking theism and atheism and you know the standard secular view um he got very unfair horrible views anyway i'm digressing so he in that book he defended teleological laws so uh that there isn't a conscious mind directing stuff there are these laws with purposes built into them so whereas we standardly think of laws as kind of working from past to future you know, the, the laws, as it were, take what's happening now and then tell you what's going to happen a second later. I mean, that's a very crude picture. But teleological laws work from future to past. They determine what's happening now. Sorry, future to present, rather. They're determining what's happening now based on the need to get closer to a certain future goal. And that sounds a bit vague, but what Nagel does is build on a very, very rigorous, well-developed version of this um, by... Uh, John Hawthorne and Daniel Nolan, which they weren't necessarily defending, but they were just interested in trying to cash this out. So yeah, so so there's no conscious mind running the universe, but there are goal-directed laws of nature. Uh, axiarchism. I mean, what, what one one problem with this is you might still think, okay, we've got these goal these laws pointing us at certain goals. How come the goals they're pointing at, maybe life, rationality, are are really good things? You know, couldn't the goals have been directed towards, uh, you know, something bad or or just, sorry, a bit of fizziness of the beer, uh, or just, you know, pol polka-dotted universe or something? How come they're really good things? You might think that pushes you back to God. But an alternative is some kind of axiarchism where we just say, no, there's just a, a fundamental push in the universe towards the good. So maybe, maybe that, the 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 fine the, the 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 sorry the teleological laws have those goals because they are good, but that's just the end of the story. So you know everyone has to stop their explanation somewhere. You know the atheist might just take cosmological fine tuning as just brute. Then uh, teleological laws take it another level of explanation. Then axiarchism might say, okay, the teleological laws have their goals because they're good, but that's the end of it. It's not like there's some god. It was interesting goodness. It's just, uh, but I mean, just a, the, the axiarchism originally came from John Leslie, one of the most important books on fine tuning universes, where he had a really sort of radical axiarchic position where the universe exists because it is good. So there's no kind of God to ultimate creator, but
but the universe exists because it's good, but that's just the bottom level of explanation. Um, I, I worry that will get us back to the problem of evil. So I, I, I would go for a kind of partial, if I'm going to go for teleological laws, I would have a kind of partial axiarchism where the push towards the good is playing some role in shaping the universe, but there's also arbitrary laws of physics that are making things arbitrary or even bad just because of the randomness. So that was a bit long-winded. So, uh, Dustin, I know that you said in the past that if there w if there were teleological laws of nature kind of, you know, pushing us towards certain outcomes that you might view that as evidence for theism. Um, but I'm curious what you guys think about teleological evil. We were talking about this a little bit before uh, we got started because, you know, Philip, you say like, well, you know, why wouldn't there be, uh, you know, because it's totally conceivable that there could be teleological laws, you know, goal-directed laws where things are aiming towards bad outcomes, you know, <laughs> like, so why aren't there those things? Why isn't there teleological evil or perhaps evil natural laws? And um, some people have argued that there are some of those in our universe, you know, like Quentin Smith wrote a paper called um, something, something called evil natural laws. And um, Philippe Leon has, uh, has a post. Um, this is also in a book that he co-wrote with Josh Rasmussen, where he talks about teleological evil. So, I mean, it does seem to me that there, there is some teleological evil, you know, um, which definitely doesn't seem to make for a nice fit for theism. You know, if you're thinking of an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful creator, you know, unlimited in power who made everything ex nihilo, and then there are these evil natural laws, it just seems like totally bizarre, <laughs> like why that would why that would exist. So, I'm curious what you think about that, Dustin, and um, and also Philip. Yeah. Uh, I guess maybe while while we're on the topic of axiarchism, um, I I guess I just want to flag um, there is maybe like a, a simplicity versus fit with data trade off here too. Um, <clears throat> you know the the simplest version of axiarchism would would maybe be something just like things go the way that would be best, um, and. That, that probably, to my mind, entails omnitheism, because wouldn't it be best if there was an omnitheist god, right? But then you run into the same problem with um, the, the, uh, the, the problem of evil, right? Um, so there's going to be a little bit... It's almost like <laughs> Philip and I maybe are going to reverse our positions here, because he says, I'd say, oh, panpsychism has these odd implications. And he says, oh, but it's simpler. Here, um, I think... The views that I'm defending are, are going to wind up being simpler, um, but then you have the problem of evil, right? Um, so, well, I think we're going to return to that in a minute. Um, but I just I had that thought while we're on the topic. Um, but yeah, teleological evil. Um, yeah, I think I I think I agree. I mean, it does seem that that some things are uh, <clears throat> are understanding their function in like the way that an evolutionary biologist would or whatever it seems that their function is is bad um yeah so i agree with that um how how might a theist uh respond i mean well there are all the common things that you might say in response to the the problem of evil um i i mean i guess my own view um, you know, I've talked, I have this paper about the simulation hypothesis where I talk about views that, um, 
sort of, it turns out that natural evils are all moral evils of some sort, right? Um, that's the direction that I'm inclined to go in. Um, I mean, I guess the view that you find in the New Testament seems to be that, uh, like, the world is is held in bondage to the forces of evil, where that means not only, like, billionaires and uh, structural racism, but actual, like, ontological, you know, evil archons. Um, and I'm, I, I mean, maybe that's what I think. Um, not that they're directly intervening all the time, of course. You have questions about how to make that view plausible. Um, how could it, how could that fit with our knowledge of the natural history of the world, all that kind of stuff. Um, and of course you also then have the question, well, why, why, why doesn't God just stomp those guys? Why does he allow that? And, you know, maybe it's something to do with free will or creaturely agency or whatever. Um, I, I guess I think, um, yeah, my, my inclination is, I talked about some other possibilities in that paper, but my inclination is to think, yeah, there is teleological evil. Um, that's not part of God's plan A, so to speak. That's the result of things getting mucked up somehow. Um, and maybe maybe part of our destiny is to try to undo some of that. Emerson and I have gone back and forth before on wild animal suffering. You know, there are these um, effective altruist people who think in the long run, really, we should be trying to like look into ways that we might improve the condition of wild animals because there there it is an, an awful system that causes all this suffering and you know it's it's pro, it's ordinary functioning is horrible in many ways for so many individuals um and maybe what we need to do is correct that somehow if we can do so in a way that's prudent and blah blah, blah. um and yeah i guess i think yeah that's right some th there is teleological evil and i hope that someday we can um do more about it i love the simulation the odyssey though I enjoyed you speaking, Dustin, on the uh, Real Atheology podcast. And as you mentioned, um, Barry Dainton published on this. And I, yeah, I saw him give the talk on this, uh, on the simulation before he published it. And the simulation theodicy, it was at um, a conference in honor of Howard Robinson, the great idealist Howard Robinson on his retirement. And um, yeah, I did think that's that the best theodicy. Uh, but I mean, I'm, I am a, very fine the problem be very compelling but i do think that's the best theodicy i've heard <laughs> that uh yeah we're, we're we're in a simulation and the the evils the results of the um the evil simulators but yeah but yeah i guess i guess i would well I'd, i mean i'd love to talk to ask you more about it really i just i guess i just yeah I, I, as you said there struggle to see you know how that would fit in with the world as we find it Apart from the simulation version of it, you know how the what these evil forces, yeah, what's, yeah, I don't know. I just find it. Yeah, I, I suppose if 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 you had to, if you if you if I knew if I thought tomorrow I woke up and I thought the ontological argument works, and there is an omni god, so there must be an explanation of why there's suffering. I guess I might go for something like that. You know, it seems to me the most plausible version. But in the absence of some compelling reason i think you know fine tuning we can do with something that's a bit godish but not the omni god so you know i don't find any compelling reason to have to take that that route i, I see what you're saying as the simplicity push but anyway we're probably preempting some other arguments but yeah. um so do you both take it then that moral evil is like significantly easier to explain than natural evil because it seems like that's kind of like an assumption for the simulation um theodicy to 
to really have any force. I, I guess I, yeah, I mean, I think so. There are, I'm aware, of course, there are many questions that remain. It, 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 theoretically, someday Philip Swenson and I are going to write a book about this. So I, until then, I can just punt to, uh, to the future when I'll have super compelling things to say about uh, all the worries people have. But yeah, my, my inclination is to think that moral evil is, is easier to explain. It's a good question. I'm not sure what I think about that. I guess I guess I always just focus on natural evil because that, that does seem the thing that's yeah, more challenging to explain. And there does seem, you know, there does seem that there is a prima facie something plausible about free will in the moral case. But I'm not sure I think that's entirely convincing either. But I suppose I never really think about it that much because I just think oh no natural evil is is obviously you know is is really compelling and so i haven't thought as much about how how, how the free will defense goes i i think i probably would think that there's a big challenge there as well but i should probably think about it more actually well i mean i would refer to something that you said in a previous talk actually where you said oh what if you know we found out that i was running a simulation in my garage and like you know the holocaust happened and like slavery happened and all and factory farming was going on and i said like oh hang on guys i gave them free will and like still like you know that might not be a compelling defense when you're in front of the ethics committee you know at your university <laughs> like um yeah but I, I i do agree i mean there are cases where it seems like i see somebody doing something bad i should intervene even though they're acting freely so like doesn't it follow that God should intervene, right? Um, so, yeah, it does seem like there has to be some relevant difference, some reason for God to, like, leave things up to the collective efforts of creatures or something like that, that, um, like, justifies some sort of non-interventionist policy in cases where we, we I should intervene if I'm there using my own free will. Um, and that's what could justify that is what one of the topics that Philip and I will address in our book when we write it someday um, in a very in a very compelling way. Um, but I look forward to it. Um, is there anything you guys want to uh, touch on before we uh, pivot to the limited God stuff a little more directly? Yeah. So the teleological laws is is one way to go, um, but I'm open to non-standard designer hypotheses um and i can see i can see postulating a designer does give you a bit of extra explanatory depth there does seem something a bit weird of just these goal-directed laws explaining them in terms of a conscious mind does give you a bit of explanatory depth but why what why think the designer has to be all powerful um so you know, I mean, I, I do, I agree with, I can see the force of what Dustin's saying, uh, echoing things Swinburne is well known for saying, that there's something very simple about the omni-god hypothesis, that all of the omni-god's characteristics are to the max, you know, all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly good, and there's something very simple about that, rather than if this arbitrary cutoff points where it's sort of a certain amount of power, but not that much, you know, that's a less simple hypothesis. But, you know, I think we, we tend to think the important thing is fitting the data. <laughs> yes, you try and have the simplest theory you can, but in the goal of fitting the data. So Swinburne himself gives this example um, of, 
I'm taking his word for it. I don't know if it, I haven't checked this out, but he says that before we had any evidence to the contrary, we assumed the speed of light was infinite because that's the simplest value, right? It's it's the simplest values are either zero or infinite. But right, okay, and maybe that's right. But then as soon as we get some evidence to the contrary, we don't sort of sit around thinking, oh, how can we find a clever way of maintaining that the speed of light is infinite? We just say, no, no, it's 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 that less precise value. So I think what we should do is, okay, maybe in some sense, the default position is the omni-god, if we're going to go for a designer hypothesis. As I say, I think there are other alternatives. But uh, if we're going to go for a designer hypothesis, maybe the omni-god is the simplest. But as soon as we look at the data, i.e. the horrific things that happen in the world, you know, that the fact that we came to exist through this torturous process of evolution by natural selection, you know, the just the, the, the everyday horrors of the natural world, you know, shrews that paralyze their prey and then eat it alive over several days. Um, so then I think we should say, I think the best hypothesis, and I, can t I consider a, a number of non-standard design hypotheses in the book, but the one I think is 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 the best is um a designer of limited a good designer of limited powers i mean you might think at first i think the most obvious alternative is a bad designer but then as stephen law and others have pointed out well what a, you get then get a problem of good why does the evil designer create all the nice things and you've got the kind of mirror image of the problem and then you could say well it's a it's a designer that's neither good nor bad but is is sort of a is like nice sometimes, but then gets a bit angry. But I think you can have some God with a, you know, really complex psychology, and that's going to be quite complicated. I think the next simplest hypothesis to the Omni God, the Omni Designer, is just a good God who wants to create the best universe she can, but she's limited in what she can do. So let's say she can only create from a singularity. So she can't just create complex matter. She can't just create Adam by breathing into the dust, as we see depicted in Genesis. She can only create from a singularity, a universe with the right kind of physics that will eventually evolve intelligent life. And um, and she knows it's going to cause loads of suffering and it's going to take millions of years. It's going to be horrible. She's like, I'm so I wish I could do it quicker, you know, but this is the best I can do. It's that or nothing. And so, you know, on balance... She thought, you know, it's better to have a universe like that than nothing at all. So, uh, so that seems to me not maybe not as simple as the Omnigod, but it's fairly simple. You know, it's a fairly simple account of, of, of what she can and can't do. So, and it fits the data much better than the Omnigod hypothesis. So, yeah, that's what I think is the, is the better design hypothesis. Not that you have to go for a design hypothesis, but if you're going to be, if you're going to go, that's the better version. Yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah, I mean, I get the appeal in explaining or trying to explain the problem of evil, right? Um, I was very for, in college for a while. I was very interested in um, process theology, and I studied abroad at Oxford. And I asked, could I take a tutorial in process theology? And they were like, no, no, we don't have anybody who can teach that in, in the college. Um, so then I never. I don't know. Maybe I'd be a process theology person if only I'd, I'd taken that tutorial. But um, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, a couple things. Um, I guess it seems like there's always going to be some trade-off between simplicity or other factors affecting theoretical virtues or whatever. 
and um, fit with the data. Um, so it's not like you always go one way or the other. There's some sort of trade-off. There's maybe no algorithmic way to do it. Um, I guess it seems to me like in the panpsychism case, you know, I would have thought it was an advantage that if your view doesn't imply that light switches are conscious or whatever, but well, but IIT is maybe simpler. But yeah. um, so, you know, we both probably maybe go different ways in different contexts. Um, it does seem to me, uh, I guess I think that, yeah, so one question will be, can we get like a limited God view that explains the data we want to explain and also doesn't face the problem of evil so badly and also is like tolerably simple, right? Um, I guess I, I do kind of think that your version of the limited God view is maybe worse from the perspective of simplicity than you think. Um, when we think about, um, you know, like the actual formalism that's in the laws of physics, it seems just like pretty weird, pretty arbitrary that like that specific formalism God is, is stuck with. Um, and particularly, you might think there's something, I don't know, particularly repugnant about, um, you know, arbitrariness and complexity at like the level of the fundamental and the necessary. Um, so if God is like the fundamental explanatory thing, it's it's particularly weird that there's sort of this handicap. And if God is necessary and has God's properties necessarily, as you might think, because of the cosmological argument or whatever, then that also might make it weirder. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess there's also a question about fit with fit with evidence. Um, so, of course, if you you know if you think that there's evidence of like divine intervention in the form of miracles or religious experience or whatever, um, then that's going to become a lot more complicated because well, if God can intervene sometimes, when other times. Um, but supposing we don't we don't lean on that for now um one problem so i'll say a, one problem about evil and then one problem about uh natural laws um i don't want to put a lot of weight on this but it might not be obvious that the limited god um does better with respect to evil because the omni god there's this question of why this rather than a better world uh the limited God, there's the question of why this rather than nothing or like no, no complex life, right? Um, omnitheism does better with why this rather than nothing because the world will probably be a lot better in the long run if God exists, right? Because all of the, I don't know, quintillions of beings that have gotten screwed over throughout the course of history have some sort of hope. They could, you know, there's might be an afterlife where maybe some good is brought out of this or whatever. Um, whereas, uh, for the limited God, they're just kind of regrettable casualties, right? Um, so it's not obvious how that shakes out. Will the world, assuming that there is no God, be good on balance, thinking about everything that's ever happened over time? Um, but there might be some respect in which omnitheism has an advantage with, with, re with regard to that question. Um, and then thinking about, like, the question of formalism. So this this was sort of inspired by uh, Tyler Hildebrand and Thomas Metcalf have this paper about the the nomological argument for theism. So people can go subscribe to my YouTube channel and watch uh, this uh, interview that I did with them. But um, 
if you think about like all the possible formalisms that there could be, you know, think about like every universe history that's allowable by a, a Humean recombination principle or something like that. Um, and like, you know, the formalisms that would govern the laws and all those universes. Um, it might seem like the overwhelming majority of possible formalisms will just generate nonsense. You know, they'll just be weird conjunctive property, like however you fill in the constants and things, they'll just generate nonsense. Um, whereas like the simplest possible formalisms would not be complex enough uh, to um, generate anything interesting. You know, they'd just be formalisms like all Fs or Gs or, you know, the physics that run a game of Pong or something like that. Um, or if that, if it's possible for those to generate something interesting, then they wouldn't constrain the limited God because all oh, the only formalism I need to respect is all Fs or Gs and I can do whatever else I want. Um, so you might think on this view, if God is just kind of stuck with some formalism and we haven't been given any reason to, to explain why is God stuck with this formalism, either we should just distribute like a priori, what formalism is God going to be st stuck with? We should just distribute like evenly across or we should distribute maybe with some bias towards very simple forms. And neither of those is going to predict formalism like the sort we have, which is able to generate from like relative simplicity, a lot of interesting phenomenon, but not just crazy nonsense, you know, enough stability and order that you have agents persisting through time and that sort of stuff. Um, whereas omnitheism maybe does a better job predicting it because God can pick what formalism to institute. And if the world where interesting things happen, there's something good about that rather than just crazy nonsense or the pong game, there would be some reason for God to favor that over other formalisms. Um, so maybe, um, maybe omnitheism does better with respect to explaining why it is that the formalism we have has this character of being able to generate a wide variety of diverse, interesting phenomenon without just generating, you know, a, a total chaotic mess or something like that. Uh, so I don't know. I, I said a bunch of stuff there, I guess. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. I should have brought a pen. Uh, um yeah yeah no, that's really interesting and i might have to partly think more about this because i mean a lot of people say oh isn't there a kind of a fine-tuning problem with a limited god like the um you know that they're they're not more or less powerful that they've got exactly this kind of power and then my response has been oh, okay but why is that needing explanation but I think what you're pressing there is maybe a reason why the, the kind of power the limited God has might need explanation. And partly I might need to think more about this. But I, I mean, I suppose I think, I mean, part of this is we're kind of drifting into the, the cosmological argument. And I don't, you know, I don't think I would feel any motivation towards theism or anything godish without the fine tuning you know if it was if it was just physics and it wasn't fine tuned uh i don't think i'd feel the the, the pull of because you know we we don't know how how simple physics is going to end up we're not at the final theory um and with respect to this thought well you know when we're talking about you know so i do feel as i know emerson has said as well that to some i feel the pull of the cosmological argument to the extent that there must be something 
that exists necessarily or that can explain its own existence or something to explain why there is something rather than nothing, why there is anything at all. I, I mean, yeah, the idea that there's just the fundamental thing just just is and there's no explanation of why it is, why it exists, you know, I do find problematic. I, I'm sort of working on an argument on this, actually, that I might talk about at some point, but I need to think about it more. But but then the, 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 the part I have trouble with is is where you try to, to move from that to the to the character specific characteristics of the omni god now okay I, I see that the omni god so you, you said well at the fundamental level don't we want to get rid of the arbitrariness don't we want uh yeah i mean maybe the the more simple you can get the fundamental starting point the less there is to explain and the, you know the, the 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 less you have that question why does this thing exist but you never quite get rid of it, right? There's even the Omni God, as as far as I understand the Omni God, the idea of the Omni God, I'd still have the question, why does that exist? Why why, why does um why does it exist rather than not exist at all? Um I mean I think the the, the ultimate cause, the ultimate necessary being must somehow explain its own nature in a way we just have absolutely no comprehension of you know we, we don't understand how a thing could explain its own nature i'm so I'm kind of a mysterian you know colin mcginn was was famously defending mysterianism about consciousness like there is just a perfectly fine explanation but we our minds just can't wrap uh, wrap wrap around it i kind of feel that about the ultimate cause there must be something that explains its own existence and maybe it's like quite straightforward it's not like you know but we just can't understand how something could explain its own existence. Maybe it's a bit like imp like the opposite of an impossible being. Like we understand how a square circle can explain its non-existence. So maybe it's like the opposite of that. It's something if you if you got, if you understood its nature, you'd say, oh yeah, that has to exist. But we just can't positively comprehend something like that. So so there's so when we never this kind of drive for simplicity, we never totally get rid of the the need to say, oh, why is it something rather than nothing? That the need to ask that so we just try and get as simple as we can and you know physics we try and get physics simpler and um we, we get it as simple as we can fitting with the data so yeah so it's only really once you bring the fine tuning in that you start to my mind we, we start to get pushed beyond just stopping with the physics but um i don't know if that totally answers all of your issues yeah yeah uh, I don't. I don't think it addresses the the kind of nomological fine tuning argument that I wanted to raise. I Can guess you say I, it again. Oh, sorry. Um, oh, 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 go I, on. I, say what yeah, you're gonna I, say. I, I just wanted to say one thing. Yeah, I sort of agree that maybe it has to be that the fundamental thing has like a, a self-explaining nature, such that if you really could grasp it, you would see why it has to be. Um, I guess, and I guess I sort of agree. Like, yeah, we don't quite know what that is. Um, I guess it seems like there are maybe more and less plausible candidates for what such a nature might be like, and it seems less plausible the more complexity and arbitrariness there is, um, and that might be kind of an advantage in favor of omnitheism over limited views. Um, the The argument about formalism was something like, uh, 
look, it seems like most possible formalisms, or at least this seems plausible to me, most conceivable formalisms that the physical laws could have uh, would not allow, like, I mean, they would just kind of generate nonsense or maybe they would be so complicated that they would be consistent with anything or, you know. Um, whereas the simplest ones either would be so constraining that uh, nothing interesting could happen or they would not be constraining at all because it would just be like, this is the, the form of the law. All Fs are Gs. Like God can do anything as long as we fill in all Fs or Gs or something like that. Um, and so the thought is there's something striking about the fact that we have formalism such that when the constants are filled in in the right way, uh, you can get like an interesting world that is complicated enough to have beings like us, but not just sort of like a, a crazy nonsense world of the sort that you would expect, like most universes that you just algorithmically generated through human recombination to be. Um, and so it might be because OmniGod can pick the formalism and there's something valuable about this formalism. Whereas the limited designer view, if the idea is sort of stuck with a formalism, we don't have an a priori reason to predict one formalism rather than another, and then has to fill in laws. Um, it seems awfully lucky that the, that the limited designer, and maybe this could be true for axiarchism and then some of these other views too, it seems pretty lucky that they got a formalism um, that allows you know, an interesting range of possibilities, you know, complicated agents in a stable environment, people, you know, whatever. Um, it seems lucky that they got that kind of formalism. Um, that view doesn't seem to predict that they get that sort of formalism, unless we just build it in, which lowers the prior probability. Whereas omnitheism, maybe the probability is going to be higher because God can pick the formalism and there's something good about that kind of formalism. It's really interesting. And I will need to think more about this and I will watch your video. Uh, it almost sounds like you're just saying, you're trying to say there's another kind of fine tuning in physics apart from, you know, yeah, the... something like that. I mean, that's sort of what their argument is in a, in a way. Um, yeah. I guess I, I mean, I'm so almost like just even before we discovered the fine tuning from the kind of 70s onwards, just the facts of physics would incline us that direction. I guess I'm. I mean, I guess I'm not. So, so as I would say it, right? If what the Omni God can do, sorry, not Omni God, my guy, the uh, the the limited God, you know, what they're limited to. If you just take physics and take the numbers out, you've got a kind of form there. Um, I found this very hard to explain in the book. The publisher was kept saying, "I don't understand what you're talking about." I think I managed anyway. So you 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 got a kind of form there and. The Omni God is limited to that form. Basically, they can fiddle with the numbers. Um, so that I mean, that's just sort of kind of physics, but without the numbers. And it doesn't. I guess I've, it hasn't occurred to me that physics without the numbers would be fine tuned. That that the, the, that kind of abstract for the form of physics. Um, but but maybe maybe there's something I'm missing here. But just moving to the. Um, the more general cosmological 
problem. So, so cosmological argument, rather. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that there are more or less plausible candidates to be the ultimate cause, and it's something to do with simplicity. So, like, I mean, I like Josh Rasmussen's example. I, I refer to it in my book of it would be weird if the fundamental thing was shaped like a Disney princess, you know, sort of like exactly like that. So, um, but the but the problem is, if the omni god got rid of all the arbitrariness, if the ontological argument worked, or then, then okay. But but it, not not no hypothesis we can come up with gets rid of all the things that, you know, I guess I'm repeating myself. Gets rid of all, gets totally rid of the desire to say, but why that? You know, maybe maybe we feel less the need to say why that. So so that's why it's the the simpler the entity is, you know, the better. But but given that it never goes away, okay, we can go for the simplest thing we can imagine, but it still wouldn't go away. <laughs> we can't scratch the itch. So 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 that I, the moral I draw from that is, we'll just try and get as simple as you can. But it, you know, the important thing is to fit the data and. And I mean, yeah, I mean, coming back to the problem of evil, I suppose I'm really interested in this problem, nomological problem you're raising to me, and I'll have to think more of it. But when I compare it to the problem of evil, I don't know, you know, you've got to weigh these things, and that just seems, you know, a lot more compelling than these more abstract, nuanced worries. But I'll we'll definitely think more about it. Uh, can I get some clarity on, on the argument? Um, it seems like the crucial part is over God's relationship to the laws of nature. Um, like on one view, God didn't create at least some of the laws of nature. They might be brute or they might be necessary, but they're just kind of over there, as it were, like God didn't create them. And then on an alternative view, God can be their explanation. And it sounds like Philip is saying that, you know, the limited designer did sort of select the laws, um, but that... Uh, you know, they couldn't just select any, you know, any set yeah, of laws. They were limited by, they, they were sort of stuck with the, the mathematical form of the laws, and then they could put in values for the constants. And things like okay, that. okay. But, um, so it doesn't, it's like, even though the limited God is kind of selecting the laws, um, you think this argument still applies? Yeah, I guess I'm thinking it might not, if you think, you know, step back from like the level that a physicist is thinking about it and just think of like all the possible forms that laws could have. Um, it seems like it might be kind of lucky, like most of the, it. I don't know, I haven't sat down and worked this out, but it seems plausible to me that most of the laws would either just generate total chaos. You know, you imagine like take every possible state of the universe of any universe and just like shuffle them all up and that's a possible universe history that you could get through a human recombination principle and i guess there's some formalism that governs such a universe right um it seems like most formalisms either would be they would like require that there be nonsense or they wouldn't constrain you very much at all or they wouldn't allow for kind of interesting things to happen um and so that we have a formalism the mere fact that the formalism is such that by putting in the right numbers, you can get interesting results. Um, that might be um, that might be some some reason to prefer omnitheism. That's that's my thought. I don't know. I haven't told anybody else about that. Maybe I'm totally wrong. This is just a thought I have. Yeah, it sounds like you're saying the form is fine tuned. Yeah, yeah. I think. Um, 
or it, in a way, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I would just add um, one or two things. One is that, you know, even if God can't pick them, there might be sort of deeper reasons. Like I, I remember, um, or like we were saying earlier, like if you could really understand, you know, foundational reality, you would kind of grasp like why it couldn't fail to exist or something. Um, but I remembered this one example from Richard Dawkins, actually, where he was talking about how when he was five, he basically just had to take um, adults world word for it that the internal angles of a triangle always added up to 180 degrees he was like that just didn't make any sense to me and i thought like you know i accepted it because like adults told me but it you know he's like i couldn't appreciate the deeper reason why that was the case until i was a little bit older um and i kind of wonder if you know i mean i know it's totally speculative but if there's something similar going on i mean it doesn't seem crazy with like this kind of more fundamental area of laws of nature that there are kind of deeper reasons that things have to be a certain way. And then this limited designer is kind of choosing among different possible sets of laws and none of them are perfect. Um, but you know, like they go with the one that's, um, you know, the least bad, all things considered, but there are sort of like deep reasons that, you know, we can't really understand like Dawkins couldn't understand, you know, uh, geometry when he was that young. Yeah. So I guess, um, it's, it's, I mean, the if it's necessary then yeah we we have an explanation i guess assuming that maybe maybe we need an explanation why it's necessary or something if it's necessary then um omnitheism i guess solves the problem too right maybe maybe the omnitheist god could intervene in nature constantly to enter to but at least the omnitheist would then have a an explanation for why the world has laws of the form that it does right because all that has to be how they are um, but, um, I, I guess I worry that sort of view, you know, it has the same sorts of drawbacks of just saying maybe the constants are necessary, you know, um, if we haven't been given a reason to think that then like epistemically the, you know, in terms of epistemic possibility, the view that the constants are necessary doesn't predict fine tuning, right? Cause, oh, well, it could be anything and be necessary. Um, if we build in specifically what the constants are, then, you know, th th this is the same thing that we say in our paper about type B physicalism, right? Uh, if we build in what the constants are to the theory, oh, they're necessary and they're this, well, then that doesn't provide an advantage over just saying, my theory is the constants are finely tuned, you know? It doesn't really explain it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I guess absent some reason to think that this would be the necessary formalism, it doesn't seem that it, the, the theory gains predictive power by, by saying that the laws are necessary. And there are maybe are other reasons to think that they're not just because it seems like they're you can easily conceive of different forms and that sort of thing. Yeah, I guess that's why I liked the geometry analogy, because those seem, you know, like mathematical truths seem like plausible, necessary truths that no one really has a problem with, you know, quote unquote, limiting God in that way. Like, unless you're, you know, Descartes or Martin Luther, then you're happy with, you know, limiting God in some ways. Like you can't do things that are nonsense or like logically impossible or whatever. Um, so I guess I was thinking more along those lines more so than like, you know, the kind of necessity that like type B physicalists are talking about, like sort of mathematical necessity. But I don't know. I haven't thought about this argument as much as you have. I, I haven't thought about it all that much. I mean, this is just an idea I had thinking about um, t Tom and uh, and Tyler's paper. But yeah, I guess the... the if it's mathematical necessity, there's still going to be the issue of like, we don't see what the mathematical necessity is. Um, and so 
just the view that there's mathematical necessity given our knowledge doesn't predict this form. I thought also what you said, sorry, what you said was interesting. Um, the advantage, I should have brought a pen. The advantage of um, omnitheism, if you have an afterlife, is, you know, it makes more plausible that it's worthwhile. Um, yeah, two, two things in response to that. I mean, I think even assuming there isn't an afterlife, I still think the problem, I would say the problem of evil pretty much goes away if if the limited designers' choices were this or nothing. I think most people, unless you're an antinatalist, you know, I think most people would think overall it's it's good, it's better, you know, that there's nature as we find it than nothing. You know, I think I think that's pretty, pretty plausible. Um, but you know, you might be able to marry um a limited God to an afterlife. Uh, as you say, process the theologians. Um, try to go this way. Thomas, I don't know, is it Thomas Ord or Thomas Ord? How do you print the pronunciation? Anyway. Okay. I, I, I always um, pronounced it Ord, but I could just... Ord, um, yeah, that, yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. Um, I think I'm thinking of the Doctor Who creatures, the Ood. Anyway. Um, yeah, he tries to make sense of a God of limited powers, and then he tries to say, well, how, you know, and the, the miracles point as well, how could, you know, how can the God of limited powers do a resurrection and a virgin birth, but can't, you know, bring people back to life more generally or, you know, deal with people's conce conceiving problems more generally. Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I might write a paper on this actually. I've been thinking about it just as a sort of intellectual exercise. I don't, I don't think his way of trying to solve this works because, because he says, well, maybe one thing he says, maybe God can work in quantum indeterminacy, but if God could do anything that's, where there's any quantum mechanical chance of it happening, that would make God practically omnipotent, you know, because, you know, there's there's a very small quantum mechanical chance that I'm going to, you know, fly to f fly to the clouds right now. Um, maybe that's not right, but anyway, the, there's, there's, there's... All sorts very, of weird stuff. Can't all sorts of weird things. Super, super. Yeah, so, uh, but, you know, you know may maybe there's some way of making sense of God you know, I mean, maybe this limited God can preserve our conscious minds after death. I don't, you know, who, I don't know. It's it's not totally obvious that um, that this would rule, that this is inconsistent with the traditional Abrahamic faiths, for example. But um, yeah, but it's it's tricky if if the if it's if it's not just deism, you're gonna it's gonna be more of a challenge having a fairly simple hypothesis where God can do some intervening and. Uh, you know, give us an afterlife and so on. Yeah, 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 I, I agree with that. It's not obvious. It's just there's a lot of work to be done to show how is it that God can bring about an afterlife that is good, it presumably is better than than this, but couldn't, couldn't make this better um, given there are also these initial problems about how do you get the person to the afterlife, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, and... Yeah, I'm not an anti. I'm not an anti-natalist. Um, I I do think it's hard to know. I think it's easier to know that like anti-natalism for humans is false. I think it's quite difficult to know thinking about the whole scope of all all sentient beings. Yeah, that's uh, a good whether point. Whether it's been good or bad up to this point, um, and unfortunately, humans are only the tiniest slice of that. Um, you know, I, I have the EA techno optimist hope that the future will be really good if we only make the right decisions. But 
you know, it's boy, it's 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 not been all that much to write home about at certain points so far. Um, what do you think, Emerson? What do you what? How do you explain psychophysical harmony? Um, <laughs> I don't really know. I mean, I'm kind of like weighing this kind of uh, like natural teleology against some of the other explanations. Um, I would like to make it work without God, mostly for the same reasons that you've been talking about, mainly evil. Um, but there are some versions of theism that are not totally implausible to me. It's just that they're kind of few and far between and believed by 17 people like Dustin and David Bentley Hart and like, you know, not that many. And um, anyway, it's just like, it's very hard for me to make it like fit together. Um, it feels like I am like literally made so I can't believe in God. Um, and I've tried to think about this from a theistic perspective, like, is there any reason God might have for making people who don't believe in him? And I feel like I've come up with some decent answers for that. So it's like, it's not like even that's a huge problem. Like, I really feel like I just can't believe in God. And it's like, well, I can kind of come up with some decent reasons for why God might create people like that, um, provided you don't accept any idiotic view like eternal conscious torment. Um, so it's not that I think that theism is like impossible but if i could make it work without theism that would be a lot more intellectually satisfying to me um because i think theism just has other problems but um we also haven't talked about some of the objections that people raise to theism as an explanation for psychophysical harmony like the unlimited theism um i do think that the revenge problem is interesting um even though the way that they set it up in the paper kind of precludes that objection which is a point I didn't really understand. Um, Brian helped me understand it more when I spoke to him. But still, I feel like it's a little bit selective to be like puzzled by psychophysical harmony in this case, but not be puzzled by the harmony that would be in the divine mind. Um, even though it's totally true, like, hey, this is a simple explanation that, it, that uh, this is a simple theory that explains the data as a reasonable prior probability. Yeah, all that's true, but it still feels kind of like selective puzzlement to me um, to, to, uh, kind of not wonder like hey isn't there something resembling harmony in the divine mind like um there are these conceivably disharmonious scenarios like shouldn't we wonder why those didn't obtain um anyway so maybe that's a promising route like maybe not but um yeah at, at the end of the day i guess i prefer natural teleology mostly for the reasons that i just don't like theism that much because it has other like unrelated problems it's not like the, i think the revenge problem like oh well then theism can't be the explanation of psychophysical harmony it's mostly this other stuff i i, I do agree you should wonder about those things um <laughs> I, I don't say you shouldn't wonder about them <laughs> we we think we have something that that addresses it basically but. yeah um but yeah, I mean, I, I'm still open to like limited, this like limited designer stuff is interesting to me, especially, you know, the way you're pairing it with like rational matter and all that. Because um, there are some Christians who believe something almost exactly like that. Um, but um, I was going to say that it's too bad that you didn't get into process philosophy, Dustin, because um, <laughs> then you could constantly yell at Philip for not taking it into account, um, for not taking Whitehead into account. Yeah, Whiteheadians always shout at me. I mean, I I, I always feel like I, there's a I feel a kinship, you know, a common intellectual kinship with Whitehead. But I don't know. It's all the sort of I never get when I talk to Whiteheadians. I never really feel I get a satisfying explanation for why all of the intricacies of the system are crucial and um ineliminable and and it i just it just seems like they just 
we have they'd have to sort of keep the whole thing. It's like the the hardcore IIT people have to keep the whole system, and we're not going to change it, you know. And um, so that's what frustrates me a bit. I sort of I think you know it's a nice idea, but it's I don't get why. Yeah, well, I'm repeating myself, but yeah, it's it's a cool and neglected, little understood by people's, you know, how people think about religion in in the general populace. It's uh, too little known about process theology, I think. You guys have both been extremely generous with your time, and um, it's starting to get late uh, over where Philip is, at least. Um, so is there anything in closing that you guys want to offer uh, before we sign off? I, I, don't, I don't really think so. I, th I mean, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed the discussion. Thanks for your time, Philip and Emerson. Um, yeah. yeah, thanks a lot. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, re I really do think this psychophysical harmony stuff is going to change the world. I think it, the problem is it's it's a bit of a subtle argument. You want to say, you want to, there's two things. A, you want to say, ah, that doesn't need explaining, you know, because it's so, it seems like such an obvious mundane fact. Unlike the, you know, the cosmological fine tuning, when people hear about that, they think, oh my, instantly you think that needs explaining. But like, why does pain make you avoid stuff? It's like, duh. And also because people think, oh, it's evolution's going to, you know, but I think people will get this, and I do think it's—I do think it's gonna—it's gonna change the world. I mean, I think yeah, part of the problem is people just don't think about consciousness enough, and but um, yeah, it's exciting stuff, and it's been a really enjoyable conversation. Oh, uh, what is the um, title of your forthcoming book, and, and when do you think it'll be out? Um, so yes, it is going to be called the publisher want to call it Why subtitle the purpose of the universe what do you guys think about this some of my friends and colleagues think people will just think it's a it's a standard defense of christianity or something you know whereas i want to you know uh you know it's it, it's it's supposed to be in a way a middle way between omni god and atheism that was the original subtitle was between god and atheism but uh what do you think about that title do you think a lot of people will just say oh that's just about Jesus or something? Um, I suppose the publisher rejected my plagiaristic title of the purpose-driven universe. I did. I liked that. <laughs> I liked that. Um, I thought it was a, li a little bit, I don't know, a little bit too, I don't know the word, not catchy enough in some way or something for, for a book aimed at general audience. But Well, I, I, after reading, you know, a couple of the chapters that you've sent, to be honest, I had no idea to expect what was in the book. I love what's in the book, like, but yeah, I would not have guessed that that's um, what it was about based on the title and subtitle, for sure. So, what would but, you have guessed? What would you have thought it was about? Like, I, on that title. I mean, yeah, something related to God, I guess. But like, when I'm reading about like panagentialism and kind of the bottom-up approach that you're taking to, and there's just. I, I just can't convey to the listeners enough. There are so many just bizarre and like interesting twists and turns. Like, <laughs> that chapter is the is the the most kind of challenging and uh, philosophical, and I think it's maybe the more original bit of the book. But uh, yeah, chapter five is my favorite part for sure. But yeah, I I would not have guessed um, that that was in there based on because it's a really radical conception of nature, and it's it's really interesting. But it's hard to know how to 
like give a title that's like hey here's what this is going to be about like i don't even really even know what it is but yeah i am still a little bit worried about anyway it's going to be out in november i think they've promised me it's going to be this calendar year but um what do you think of that title, Dustin? We, sorry, we, but don't, we can edit this out. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's, what is it? It's Why the Purpose of the Universe? Is that the title? Yeah, subtitle The Purpose of the Universe. I think I think your older subtitle got the idea across better. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, I guess I worry. Why the Purpose of the Universe? It doesn't sound to me like a Christian book. It sounds to me like um, The Secret or something. You know, almost like a kind of new agey type, you know, it's a little obscure, but it's, you know, it's kind of like that, that, that's what I, I think that would be my, like, if I just saw that and didn't have any idea who you were, but I saw that on like the airport shelf, I think that would be my thought. Yeah. I worry between God and atheism might make a bit too niche, like, for I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's really hard, but um do you do you want me to cut this part out like is this because i'm happy with leaving it in unless you want me to take it i'm out. happy to leave it in but i just worry it'll bore people this five minute discussion well, about at, my at, book at, at this point they've already watched for two hours so they're, they're committed you know, yeah you must be willing to put up with us <laughs> yeah we got the real heads with us at this point like we can say anything we want it's, it's only the people who really like the three of us or, who are going to even be watching at this point <laughs> All really hate us and enjoy, yeah. enjoy the enjoy feeling the hatred of. That seems to be a significant faction of my audience, actually. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I probably should go to bed. This uh, the problem is I can't wind down after these things. So yeah. Well, thank you guys so much uh, for coming on. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, I learned a lot, and I'll be thinking about this uh, conversation for a while. So yeah, thanks again, and for the people listening. Um, Links to their work and their channels and so on is in the show notes. Uh, yeah, thank you for listening. Thanks, Emerson. Doing great stuff. Mm-hmm.